You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 77 the Dunmore Proclamation, and the Southern War. When we last left Virginia in episode 69, Royal Governor Dunmore had taken refuge aboard the HMS Fowey and was directing military raids against Virginia towns along the coast. British Marines and Virginia soldiers had fought a pitched battle at Hampton, forcing the Marines to withdraw. Dunmore and the British operated out of a secured shipyard in Norfolk but otherwise had pretty much lost control of the entire colony. Unlike some other toppled royal governors, Dunmore was not content to sit aboard ship and await the arrival of British regulars. As a former army officer, he would try anything in his power, using the resources he had available, to oppose the open rebellion. For months, Dunmore had threatened to raise an army of slaves to rise up against the rebel colonists thus stoking fears of a slave rebellion. Based only on rumor, many slaves began flocking to Norfolk to offer their services to Dunmore. Following the Battle of Hampton, on November 7, 1775, Lord Dunmore issued a public proclamation declaring martial law in the colony and calling on all loyal subjects to take up arms against the traitors. More significantly, he called on the slaves of all rebels to join his new Loyalist army. In exchange for their service, they would be granted their freedom. As always, if you want to read the full text of the proclamation, a link is available on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Now, to be clear, this was not an attempt to abolish slavery. The slaves of Loyalists in Virginia were not eligible for this deal. Governor Dunmore was trying to confiscate the slaves from rebels and use them against the rebellion. Even so, for many Tories, the proclamation made manifest the irony of colonists who complained about being enslaved and denied fundamental liberties being confronted by people that the colonists themselves had actually enslaved and denied fundamental liberties. For Southern whites, attempting to foment a slave rebellion was really the nuclear option of the time. Once unleashed, no one knew how far it could go or how much destruction it could wreak. Southern whites vented their outrage at the governor and considered his promise to free the slaves of rebels as a horrific act of tyranny. It heightened the ardor of many patriots and pushed many moderate Southerners into the patriot camp. After all that, Dunmore's call was not particularly effective in recruiting an army of slaves. Because Dunmore no longer controlled the colony, most slaves had no way of reaching him, even if they heard about the proclamation. Any failed attempt to escape their masters 
risked terrible punishment. As a result, only about 800 slaves reached Norfolk to heed Dunmore's call. And many of these were women and children, meaning Dunmore's regiment of slave soldiers only came to about 300. British officers trained and drilled what became known as the Ethiopian Regiment. The Ethiopian Regiment, along with a single colony of Loyalists, mostly from around Norfolk, and two companies of British regulars and a few British Navy ships, were the only military forces that Dunmore had available. Generals Gage and Howe were still hoarding almost all the regulars in North America for the defense of Boston. On November 13th, about a week after issuing the proclamation, Dunmore moved his forces on a small village known as Kemp's Landing, a few miles from Norfolk on the Elizabeth River. His force included almost all of his rangers, along with about 20 Loyalist militia and a few freed slaves as well. Their goal was to investigate reports that North Carolina had sent Patriot militia into Virginia. Governor Dunmore, who as I said was a former British officer with considerable combat experience, personally led the mission. The reports of North Carolina militia proved false, but 170 local Virginia militia turned out to ambush the expedition. As Dunmore's forces approached them, the inexperienced militia fired too early. The British then charged the militia, who fled in disorder. One of the British soldiers, a former slave, captured the commander of the Patriot militia, Joseph Hutchings, his former master. After the British took control of Kemp's Landing, Dunmore read his proclamation publicly for the first time. About 100 local militia came forward and took an oath of loyalty to the Crown. They claimed they had been forced into supporting the Patriot cause. Over the next few days, more than 3,000 men in the area took the oath of loyalty. Actions like this gave hope to the British that most people remained loyal but were simply afraid to speak out. If Dunmore could re-establish British control of the territory, the majority of colonists would greet them as liberators and help restore order. It turned out, though, that a great many people were simply willing to say whatever would help them with whichever side happened to be pointing a gun at them at the moment. Still, Dunmore took advantage of his momentum and began recruiting more Loyalist militia and building up defenses around Norfolk. Dunmore also moved a force to the south at Great Bridge, a shipping point where trade goods from North Carolina moved into Virginia. Norfolk is primarily surrounded by water and marshy swampland. The area known as Great Bridge provided the best way for a land force to enter or leave town. Still fearing a possible raid from North Carolina militia, Dunmore organized a defensive line there with about 600 men and two cannon. He began to build a larger fort dubbed Fort Murray, Governor Dunmore's actual name was John Murray, near the bridge. Again, he deployed most of his regulars, along with sailors from the HMS Otter. The remainder of the forces were Loyalist militia now flocking to his cause. Virginia Patriots had established their own regiments of colonial regulars to defend the colony. These were not Continental soldiers, nor were they militia. They were men who had enlisted to become professional soldiers for Virginia. 
Colonel William Woodford commanded the 2nd Virginia Regiment. He moved his regiment south from Williamsburg to confront Dunmore near Norfolk and put an end to the governor's attempts to recruit a Loyalist army. Woodford was an experienced veteran who had served under Washington during the French and Indian War. He also commanded forces against Indians on the Virginia frontier while serving as a militia officer. Woodford's regiment, along with Patriot militia from both Virginia and North Carolina, totaled about 900 men. On the morning of December 9th, the Loyalists took the initiative, attempting to charge the Patriot line. Woodford's forces maintained discipline and held fire until the Loyalists were within range. A fatal volley forced the Loyalist line to stagger and fall back. Most of the Loyalist militia fled, while the British Grenadier Company stood and fought against overwhelming numbers. As a result, the British regulars took most of the casualties that day. The Patriots followed up with a counterattack, but the British cannon held them at bay. The Patriots opted not to storm the fort, allowing the occupants to slip away that night back to the defenses at Norfolk. The Patriots won the field, taking almost no casualties, while killing or wounding over 100 Loyalists or British regulars. According to some accounts, one Patriot militiaman who showed particular bravery that day was a man named Billy Flora. What makes Flora remarkable was that he was a free black man in Virginia. He had been born free and owned a farm in southern Virginia. Virginia exempted free blacks from the obligation to bear arms and ordered them to appear at musters without arms. Despite this, Flora clearly had been an armed member of the militia for many years. Following the loss at Great Bridge, Dunmore judged Norfolk to be indefensible. He evacuated the soldiers and Loyalist civilians from the city to the small fleet offshore. Many Loyalist civilians evacuated in their privately owned ships as well. A few days later, Colonel Woodford's Patriot soldiers occupied Norfolk. For the next few weeks, the Loyalists in ships faced off against the Patriots in Norfolk. As the Loyalist fleet considered its options, a smallpox epidemic broke out, killing most of the soldiers in the Ethiopia Regiment, among others. The fleet also needed food and could not get to land to obtain any. On December 17th, the British attempted to recapture the Snow, a ship that the Patriots had captured containing tons of salt. The Navy tried to use bluster and threats to get the Patriots to give up the ship, but they refused, and the British backed off without shots fired. The following week, on November 21st, Captain Henry Bellew arrived aboard the HMS Liverpool with another 400 Marines and some supply ships. The reinforcements gave Dunmore the confidence to put the naval ships in a line of battle against Norfolk and threaten the city unless they provided food to the fleet. The Patriots refused, and the standoff continued for more than a week. That must have been an enjoyable Christmas for everyone involved. On December 30th, Bellew renewed his threat to destroy the city and announced that women and children should evacuate the town. Finally, on New Year's Day, 1776, the fleet opened fire on Norfolk with over 100 cannons for over 24 hours. 
the Marines then stormed the beaches and fought a pitched hand-to-hand combat battle with the Patriot forces still defending the town. The Marines put most of the houses along the waterfront to the torch and also burned the ship, the Snow, down to its waterline. Eventually, the Patriots drove the Marines back to their ships. The next day, however, the Patriots ended up burning most of the rest of the towns, focusing on the homes of families who were known Tories. By January 3rd, the fighting seemed to be over, but then on the 5th, the Patriots stormed the British-occupied Gosport shipyard. The British gave up the shipyard, but only after most of it had been burned to the ground. Over the next few weeks, the Patriots and the Navy would trade a few shots, but there were no more pitched battles. In February, the HMS Roebuck arrived with more soldiers. But unable to retake the town, the fleet moved to nearby Portsmouth, where they established a base and continued to send hit-and-run raids against coastal towns. Dunmore did not attempt to hold any towns or recruit a new army. Effectively, there was no more royal government control anywhere in Virginia. As long as we're in the South, I want to move a little further south and talk about South Carolina. When we last left South Carolina, Royal Governor Campbell, like Dunmore in Virginia, had taken refuge aboard a ship, in this case the HMS Tamar, in Charleston Harbor. He had been aboard ship since the summer of 1775, leaving the Patriots in control of Charleston and the coastal region of South Carolina. In September, the Patriot Council of Safety ordered a raid on Fort Johnson, also in Charleston Harbor. Colonel William Moultrie, who would later rise to the rank of Major General in the Continental Army and would also serve as Governor of South Carolina, led the assault. Among the other officers supporting Moultrie were Captain Charles Coatsworth Pickney, who would go on to serve as a delegate at the Constitutional Convention, and would also become a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. And also Captain Francis Marion, who would later gain fame in the war as the Swamp Fox. The force staged a dawn raid on September 15, 1775, only to find that most of the small garrison had already abandoned the fort and taken the cannons. The Patriots soon moved a few new cannons into the fort, to defend against any possible attack by the British Navy still in the harbor. Following the capture of Fort Johnson, the Patriots seized a ship carrying supplies to the British fleet in the harbor. Governor Campbell then ordered the Royal Navy to blockade the harbor and soon captured a merchant vessel of his own, the Polly. The Navy also fired on the Patriots still occupying Fort Johnson, but did not attempt to retake the fort. Throughout the fall, the Navy continued to attempt the seizure of merchant ships in the area, with some limited success. Patriots began arming their own ships to harass the Navy. They also sank several wrecks in the harbor to limit the Navy's ability to navigate around the harbor. In December, the HMS Scorpion captured a larger ship, the Hetty, and the British armed that ship and added it to their fleet. They renamed it the HMS General Clinton in honor of British General Henry Clinton. This increased their fleet size to six ships. South Carolina Patriots were fighting a two-front war at this point. 
They were dealing with the British Navy in Charleston Harbor, as well as a significant Loyalist force inland. The Loyalists were active and openly opposing the Patriots in the backcountry, including the area around Fort 96. Back in episode 69, I explain how Loyalists had seized that fort in July. Over the next few weeks and months, it became a Loyalist center of power. Many of the Loyalists had good relations with the Cherokee and would camp on Cherokee lands. In late October, in an attempt to curry favor with the Cherokee and encourage them to remain neutral, the Patriots sent them a thousand pounds of gunpowder, as well as lead for making shot. The Loyalists learned of the delivery and assumed that the Patriots were attempting to arm the Cherokee and encouraged them to massacre the Loyalists. The Loyalists captured the wagons along with a squad of Patriot rangers trying to protect them. They took the prisoners and wagons back to Fort 96. The capture of the wagons convinced the Patriot leadership that they really needed to do something decisive about the Loyalists in the interior. Just after the Loyalist seizure of the powder wagons in October, Major Andrew Williamson sent a team of rangers to recapture the lost ammunition. The Patriots moved on Fort 96, but faced a superior force of Loyalists. They had to withdraw. On November 19th, Williamson returned with a much larger force of about 600 rangers, only to find 96 unoccupied by the enemy. He did, however, soon receive word that the Loyalists had assembled a force of around 1,500 soldiers and that the force was on its way to confront his brigade. Williamson decided to face the much larger force of Loyalists in battle. He had his men set up a fortified camp in a field near town. As it turned out, the Loyalists, under the command of Patrick Cunningham, arrived with over 2,000 men and occupied the town of 96. Although the Patriots were outgunned, they had chosen the high ground and had time to dig defensive entrenchments. They also mounted two swivel guns to discourage a direct enemy assault on their position. For two days, the two sides mostly took pot shots at each other from their entrenched positions. At one point, the Loyalists attempted to set fire to the field and storm the Patriot lines, but were quickly pushed back. The battle might have become a siege or a standoff, but for the fact that neither side had good access to a water source and both sides were running out of gunpowder after two days of firing. Neither side was expecting any reinforcements that might tip the balance. On November 21st, the third day of fighting, the two sides agreed to a ceasefire. The Patriots would destroy their fort and turn over their swivel guns. Both sides would leave the area and agreed not to attack the other side as they left. They also agreed that they would not allow any relief forces or reinforcements to attack the other side. Finally, each side would return any prisoners captured during the fighting. For a battle of nearly 3,000 soldiers, casualties were remarkably light. The Patriots suffered only one killed and 12 wounded. The Loyalists, mostly because of that one assault attempt, suffered 52 killed and 20 wounded. Despite the treaty at Fort 96, which supposedly bound other supporters on each side, Colonel Richard Richardson of the Patriot Rangers decided not to respect the treaty. He moved to attack Loyalist camps inside Cherokee territory. 
it became known as the Snow Campaign as they marched through heavy snow during late November and December. Captain Cunningham, the Loyalist officer who had signed the treaty at 96, had disbanded most of his regiment under that treaty. Richardson dispatched 1,300 patriots to capture Cunningham and his men. Surprised and outgunned, the Loyalists scattered in a skirmish that became known as the Great Cane Break. Cunningham escaped on horseback. Most of his men fled into the woods, also escaping. The Patriots did capture Loyalist Thomas Fletchall and shipped him back to Charleston under guard. Having captured or scattered the remainder of the Loyalist troops in the area, the Patriots marched back to Charleston through more than two feet of snow. With one of their top leaders captured and troops scattered, the Loyalists were out of the fight for the rest of the winter. By the end of the year, Loyalists in the backcountry were scattered and demoralized. The small British fleet in Charleston Harbor was short on supplies and living miserably aboard ships in the cold winter weather. Finally, in January 1776, Governor Campbell ended the blockade and moved the fleet down to Georgia. From there, he eventually sailed to Jamaica, where he began preparations to return for the spring offensive. With that, the Patriots effectively took control of all of South Carolina. Next week, we head north again to catch up with Benedict Arnold, who had passed through the New England wilderness and was preparing to attack Quebec. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. As I record this, we're reaching the end of 2018, the first full year of the podcast. I have to say, the interest in this project has far exceeded any expectations that I had for it when I started. I really appreciate everyone's encouragement and support. Also, anything you can do to help spread the word about the podcast and to help contribute to its growth, will earn you my deep thanks. In the podcast, we're approaching the end of 1775. There's a great deal going on in the middle of winter, which is unusual for this era. The Patriots knew that they would likely face a massive British crackdown in the spring, and they wanted to be in the best position possible before then, which meant winter campaigning. Now, I left off in Canada in mid-campaign last week, so that we could move south this week. I'll return to Canada again next week, and some of you may find it distracting the way I order episodes, 
and that it might be easier to finish the Canada campaign and then move south. My reasoning against this was that I tried to convey that all these different things really are happening at once. Both sides of the revolution had to deal with many different fights at many different locations all at the same time, so we're trying to do the same. Much of today's episode dealt with Virginia's governor, Lord Dunmore, and his attempts to quash the rebellion with little help from London or even with the British military in Boston. A big part of his efforts was to encourage Virginia slaves to support the king in exchange for freedom. This was not a novel concept. Throughout the history of the empire, subjects who rallied to the support of the king in times of crisis could expect more benefits. At the same time, groups who rebelled would often lose them. As I mentioned in the podcast, this greatly outraged Southern whites. Dunmore's proclamation is largely credited with inspiring one of the lines in the Declaration of Independence when they're talking about all the horrible things the king did when they say he has excited domestic insurrections amongst us. Escaped slaves who flocked to the king's colors knew that they were putting it all on the line. Many Virginia slaves took the gamble, even though it was ultimately unsuccessful for most. It was not the lack of commitment or cowardice in battle that impacted them. In this case, it was the scourge of smallpox, one of the most ruthless killers during the war on both sides. We also heard from some black patriots who joined the cause. Now, there was no guarantee that a new patriot government would improve the lot of slaves in society. As it turned out, the revolution did improve the lot of slaves in the North, but definitely not in the South. Southern blacks, however, did not have the benefit of hindsight that we do today. They understandably believed that if they picked up a gun and put their life on the line in defense of colonial liberties, that other colonists would respect their efforts and would help recognize them as full members of society. We see that free black landowners in Virginia at the time were willing to take up the patriot cause and believe that doing so would help them earn respect. Regrettably, we know now that this would not be the case, and that laws regarding blacks in the South actually became worse in the decades following the war. But that is a whole different story. It does, however, bring me to this week's book recommendation, Black Patriots and Loyalists Fighting for Emancipation in the War for Independence by Alan Gilbert. This 2012 book looks at black participation in the revolution, the factors that drew slaves and free blacks to join one side or the other, mostly focused on participation in the South. Chapter 1 covers the Dunmore Proclamation and the incidents surrounding that. The book then goes on to cover lots of other stories and trends throughout the war. The author, Gilbert, is a professor at the University of Denver. He's not a history professor, but teaches international studies. I think this is his only foray into writing a history book. Even so, it is well written and will keep you engaged with many interesting stories. Although the book is over 350 pages, more than 100 of those pages are endnotes and indices, so the text itself is not terribly long, but it is very well documented. As always, if you are interested in this book, there is a link to it on my website, www. Dot amrevpodcast.com. 
And if you're listening to this long after publication, my website also has a list of all past book recommendations of the week with links to those books. You can always find this book and other book recommendations on that list long after their week in the sun is over. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.